Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Good morning. So yeah, he got that right. I am Sean Sells from Cheyenne, but I do not sell seashells by the seashore because there is no seashore in Cheyenne. So if you got all that down, you're doing pretty good. Well, open your Bibles if you haven't already got it there to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1. And we're going to be taking a big overview of Romans 1, 2, and 3 today. Um, Not a magical system behind how I choose my sermons. We're doing Romans chapter 3 in Cheyenne, which means I did 1 and 2 last week. Um, But I couldn't do 3 here without explaining Romans 1 and 2, so you guys get the overview of all three of those chapters. Because uh, one of the things that happens when we're preaching through the Scripture, we have this opportunity to go through the Word, but we sometimes get very myopic. We get very focused in on one little piece, and as we focus in on that one little piece of the passage, we actually miss the argument that is being inspired by God to be written down by the author of the Scripture. And so uh, we want to make sure that we don't get focused on one little idea and miss the whole picture. So we're going to use Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17 and 18 as our outline. Uh, and I believe it's actually the outline for Romans 1 through 8, but it's going to be our outline here today. So verse 16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so thankful for each person that's here today, so thankful for your word and the powerful gospel that you give us. Uh, Father, my prayer is always that uh, your word, which we know is is powerful and true, will speak into our hearts that your Holy Spirit, who is indwelling the believers, who is in our midst today, uh, will be speaking to us and teaching us the things that you have for us. Lord, open our eyes that we can see these wonderful words that you've given to us. Uh, Father, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Romans 16, or 1, 16, 17, and 18 is going to serve as our outline, but what we're going to do is we're going to flip it upside down. Uh, this is a, a thing that the, the Jewish authors often do. You'll see this in various places. They'll say something, and it's kind of a list, and then they'll start with the last thing on their list, and they'll work their way back up the list to get to their point. So you see it here. You see it in Matthew 24 and different places like that. But um, what we're going to do then is take this order and go this direction, We're first going to look at the wrath of God. Then we will look at righteousness by faith, which will lead to this conclusion that uh, we have the power of of the gospel for salvation for anyone who believes. Uh, This is something that Paul was not ashamed of, something he couldn't wait to preach about. He's writing this whole book to the Roman church because he intends to go there someday and preach the gospel, which he will go there, and he's going to go there on the government's dime because he's going to be a prisoner and they're going to take him there. So uh, what a great deal. He gets to do his missions work uh, at the expense of the Roman government. So uh, let's look first then at the wrath of God. I think it is important when we look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, sometimes we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, but we forget to tell people why they need good news. 
We actually forget to tell them that there's, there's bad news that needs the good news. We forget to tell them uh, about this reality that we're separated from God because of our own sinfulness, that each one of us has, uh, in our own sin, gone our own way. We've gone a, kind of the, the Frank Sinatra thing. We've done it our way, right? This is the way we've kind of lived the world. Or as I like to say it, we've basically imagined a world where we are God and we get to do whatever feels good to us. That's the state of the whole world around us. We, because of that, have the wrath of God waiting for us. Look what it says here in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made, them, made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his indivisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Essentially, what Paul's saying here very simply is this. You have no excuse for walking away from God. He made it evident within you that he existed. He also made it evident in creation. We should be able to look at the creation of the world and just look at all that's around us and say, there is a God. Or said another way, uh, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Creation itself cries out, there is a God. One of the greatest apologetics for us is just the understanding of creation. People say, well, you believe that a God created earth based on faith. And I say, you believe that it all happened by accident based on faith. That some unmoving force caused things that didn't exist to pop into existence and bounce into each other and start to bounce around and create life, which built the world and the universe and everything that we see. And that accident caused the earth to be divided into to land and to sea, and then the sea creatures to crawl up on the land and grow chest hair and become us. Well, some of us grew chest hair, sorry. But this is the way that the, 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 the scientific world views this. And now they know the math doesn't work. And so they've created a new theory. It's the multiverse. Because it's impossible statistically for this to happen by an accident. But what if there were thousands of universes and this just happens to be the one that works, which is super convenient, right? The multiverse that's out there. Well, what that does is it changes the statistical improbability of the accident, the great accident that they believe created the world. They can divide it by however many universes there are. The problem, though, they still didn't fix the problem. In the beginning, what started it all? But they don't just need one thing to start it now. Now, for every universe, they need a start, an accidental start, where two accidental things accidentally bumped into anything and created everything. For us, the greatest apologetic that God exists is that we exist, that creation is here. Now, I'm not opposed to science, but what I would say is science has its purpose. As it studies nature, it reveals God. We should be the greatest scientists. When we study creation, we study the God who created everything. But that's not what the world has done. The world looked at all of the creation and began to worship the creation rather than the God. We continue on there. Let's jump down into this uh, idea. In verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Uh, idolatry is what was formed. From the creation of God, 
There comes this rejection. They begin to worship the creation rather than the creature. That's the way he's going to say it uh, in verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. One of the most clear ways that we illustrate representation of idolatry in our world is that we worship ourselves in so many ways. We just do whatever feels good to us. He says it three different ways here. But when we rejected God as humanity, it says he, he gave us over in verse 24, gave them over in the lusts of their hearts. In verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And in verse 28, about midway through, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things that are not proper. When we stopped worshiping God and worshiped his creation instead of worshiping him, God gave us over to do things our way, but our way was following after our own lusts and following after our own passions and following after our depraved mind. It leads us to idolatry. It leads us to worshiping ourself. The clearest picture of that is going to be the next illustration he gives there in verse 26. He's going to illustrate how humanity begins to worship itself. It says this in verse 26. Uh, it says, God, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing uh, indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. What is the, the greatest picture of idolatry? Well, I would say it's homosexuality. It says, you know who I love? I love somebody who's exactly like me. It goes back to this whole picture of worshiping ourselves, worshiping the creation rather than worshiping the God who is the creator. And of course, it doesn't just stop there. That's one example. He then gives us a list of like 20 things as we continue on there. When you go through and we'll pick it up in verse 29, that the people, the men on this earth were filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Well, the point that Paul's trying to make is he's trying to help the whole world see that they're in unrighteousness. And so he goes to this list, idolatry, homosexuality, greed, and, and depravity of mind, and wickedness, and evil, and murder, and strife, and deceit. He's kind of naming all the sins he could possibly name. He even goes so far as to say, you guys have invented new ways to sin that I hadn't even thought of yet. You're inventors of evil. And beyond that, the struggle that we have in humanity is it's not just that we sin, but we give hearty approval to other people who sin. He wants us to all see that because of our sinfulness, because of our wickedness, we deserve the wrath of God. And it's not until you understand you deserve the wrath of God that you can be saved from the wrath of God. Just like if you don't know you're drowning, you'll never be saved, right? If you don't know you're dying, you can't get help. If you don't know you're lost, you can't get directions. You have to first understand the full lostness of the human soul. This whole idea that we were given over to our own depravity to go after our own way. Now, 
This is where it gets interesting. He's, he's wrapped up this idea that the ungodly people are deserving of the wrath of God. What he then begins to do is have these arguments with imaginary people now. <laughs> these imaginary people who would just look at the ungodly people in the world and go, tsk, tsk, tsk. Look at those ungodly people. You're right, Paul. Those ungodly people, they, them, they, they deserve the wrath of God. I agree with you, Paul. Paul's like, I made a pretty big list there. It was intended to include you as well. <laughs> He's trying to show that the whole world is guilty. The whole world is deserving of the wrath of God. That's the argument that he's trying to make here. And so in chapter two, the way I like to envision this is Paul is sitting down at a table and he's gonna be sitting across the table from two different men and he's gonna be having an argument with them. He's gonna be providing answers to their questions. And the argument with one group of men in verses one through 16, the first guy he's gonna be arguing with in chapter two is the guy who believes he's saved because he's good. Those are evil people that you were talking about in chapter one. Thank me that I'm a goodness person, <laughs> that I am so good that I deserve to be saved. And then on the second half of that, he's going to be speaking to the religious person who says, well, I'm not ungodly and I'm not good enough, but I am religious enough. And because I have the right religious label, I'm somehow saved. He's going to have to deal with these two different disagreements that would come that would cause people to misunderstand that they, that you, that I, that we are all deserving of the wrath of God because we rejected the God who is the creator of everything. This is how he's, he's putting the gospel for us today. So we pick it up in chapter two. It says, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge and practice the same things, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Look, what he's saying is, read over that list again. <laughs> that list wasn't about they, it was about you. And as I go back through that list, and this is a natural thing that we do, and I think in part, because some of the things on that list are so extreme, it's very easy for us to point that list at other people. We look at that list and we see things on there like murder. Oh, I've never murdered anybody. I've never been an inventor of evil. I'm not that creative. I just follow everybody else's evil. That's way easier. I don't have the energy for that. We just kind of read through this list and it just seems so extreme that we think to ourselves, it's not really about us. Well, read it again, but point each one of those at you. And ask yourself if you've, if you've done any of these things. Unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, nobody greedy in the room. Evil, full of envy, nobody's envious in the room. Maybe we've not murdered. Strife, you've not been at odds with other people. Deceit, you've never lied. Malice, you've never had a bad intention. Gossip, you've never spoken poorly of anyone. At some point you want to say, hey, Paul, back off. Get out of my business. Leave me alone. Right? Exactly. He's like all up in your chili. What's going on, Paul? No, these things are intended to convict all of us of sin. So the person who says, boy, you're right, Paul. I'm sure glad I'm not like those ungodly people. Paul says, hey, careful. You're just like them. You're one of the ungodly people. 
If you're standing on your own works, on your own righteousness, you're actually just, as it says in verse five, storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, this is looking all the way to the end of times. Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment. Uh, you see this in uh, Matthew chapter 16. You see it uh, in Psalms and in Proverbs. You see this idea that there's going to be this time where God will judge everybody on planet Earth. And I don't want to get into this. It's a weird thing to say, but ultimately I have to just bring it up. We don't know this. We get confused by this, but God will judge us based on our deeds, which sounds highly, highly outside of the orthodoxy of Christianity because I'm not saved by my deeds. But yes, you will be judged on your deeds. The beauty of the gospel is this. All of your sinful deeds have been paid in full by Jesus Christ. When they open up the book of deeds done and they read the deeds done in your life, there's nothing but good there because of the work that Jesus did. You see, it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. The person who's self-righteous and decides to themselves that they've done good, they've done enough to be saved and they stand on that, that person will stand condemned that day because yes, there'll be a list of good things, but yes, there's gonna also be a list of bad things. And it's for the bad things that they will be separated from God, for the things they did that were in opposition to God, the things that they did in the following of their own lusts, their own passions, and their own desires. The question I would have for the good works person is, where's the verse that tells me how many good works are enough? That's the scary thing about good works to me. Like, could you imagine like working your whole life trying to be a good person? Sometimes you do really well, sometimes you struggle, but then you die and you stand at the gates of heaven and you're getting ready to be let in and St. Peter goes, well, let me do the math here. Oh, you're one good work just short. You just about made it. I guess you're going to be in hell forever. You were this close. If you'd have just done one more thing, helped one more person across the street, you'd have been there. Man, good works is not anything to stand on. We're, we're climbing the stairway to heaven, but we don't know how long it takes to get there. You may not live that long. You have no idea. See, there's no hope in good works. There's no hope in it whatsoever. You know, all of our glory and honor and everything has to go back to Jesus Christ. Eternal life only comes through him. The reality in verse 11 is there is no partiality with God. God doesn't make a difference between people on planet earth. He doesn't look at them by any other standard. He says to the Jewish person, you've sinned. He says to the non-Jewish person, you've sinned. I'm judging them all, he says, by the same standard. Now that's going to start to bug the Jewish guy a little bit. The Jewish guy is going to say, now wait a second. I am a Jew after all. We're God's special people. Don't I get a special dispensation or something? Isn't there a special set of rules that we're judged by? And that's the argument that's going to be made next. Uh, so we go from good is never good enough to religion never saved a soul. In verse 17, it says this, uh, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident of yourself as a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? 
You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor evil, or abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This indictment from Paul to the one who says, wait a second, Paul, I don't think you understand. My name tag says Jew. My name tag says religious person. My name tag says Christian. Have you seen my name tag? That's what it says. It's right there. That's who I am. That's my label. You can't treat me like this. Paul says, I don't care what your label says. Your actions say something else. Your actions are different than your label and your actions are the very things that the unbelieving world finds so stinking unbelievable. It's the hypocrisy of the religious person that drives the world insane. Because the religious person, unintentionally maybe, gives a false gospel that says, if you look like me, act like me, you'll be saved like me. But that just goes back to works-based, doesn't it? We are not the example. God and Jesus Christ, there's your example. That's the example, it's not us. And so you have this mislabeling that happens. Now, Paul uses the example of circumcision in verse 25 to kind of explain this. He says, hey, you might be Jewish, you might even be circumcised, but circumcision does not mean that you love God. It just means you followed some religious act, some religious ritual. Now, this is a big deal. Uh, some Jews back in the day actually had this idea that in order to enter into the eternal life, the blessings of God, that they had to go through Abraham. And when they met Abraham in the afterlife, that he would actually check the boys to see if they were circumcised. And if you weren't circumcised, you went to hell. And if you were circumcised, you went to heaven. Uh, again, it's a, it's a religious works, but it's still just works. They're trying to wear a label. Here's the problem with labels. Labels can be wrong. Let me explain it to you this way. If, if there was a practical joker in our midst who went to the grocery store today, and he went to the Alpo aisle and grabbed a can. And then he went over to the, to the canned peaches aisle and he swapped those labels and put those cans back in the different places now so that one of those cans of canned peaches has Alpo in it. I don't care what that label says. When you pop that can open, you know it's not, it's not peaches, it's Alpo. It's Alpo, there's just no other way around it. It's what's inside that matters. What's the heart of the matter? Jesus does the same thing. He makes this same argument in a couple of different ways in some other passages. But speaking to the Pharisees, he says this to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, look, you guys are whitewashed tombs. Yeah, we can paint a tomb as nice as you want on the outside, but inside you're still dead. Now, this is the great problem, the great problem with religious-based righteousness or self-righteousness. It can look the same as God-given righteousness on the outside. The actions can be the same. I can come to church, I can take communion, I can listen to sermons, and I can sing all the pretty songs. I can go to summer camps. I can do all of those things and not believe a thing about God. I can go through the religious paces, I can go through the good works and look like a good person. But none of that removes the fact that I am depraved of mind. 
It's just the outside appearance. It's just that I've got the wrong label on my can. It's deceptive and it's destructive and it's dangerous. Now what God's concerned about in verse 29, he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart. Now God says at different places in the Old Testament, but I love this phrase. He says, I'm sick of your bloody sacrifices. Now he's not, he's not British, he's not your bloody sacrifices. He's sick of the, all the sacrifices that they were bringing because they were thinking to themselves somehow, not that they were being forgiven of their sins because something died. But they were thinking that the sacrifice was just one more work to please God. I sinned, but I've got a work to cover that sin. I'll just bring another sacrifices. God says, I'm sick of your bloody sacrifices. I want your heart. You see, it's to the one who believes, the one who receives Jesus Christ by faith that has righteousness credited to them. We go back to our, our outline for a minute and we saw this here, this idea that uh, the wrath of God in verse 18, but verse 17 says, it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written that the righteous man shall live by faith. And faith is always put in opposition to works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved from faith, that not of your works. That's the concept here. That's the picture here that he's going to give us. So he's going to play this out in, even further. And the beginning of chapter 3 can be a little bit confusing, but he's still having this argument. Now he's having the argument with the religious man, and he's trying to guess all the questions they might ask him. And so there's 17 question marks in the NASB version of the Bible, 17 question marks in those first 20 verses. And so it's just going to be kind of rapid fire. Boom, boom, boom. Question, 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 question. But the question is this, then what advantage has the Jew? What benefit is circumcision? Well, he says, there is an advantage. You were the ones who brought the oracles of God to the people of the world. But that's not enough to overcome your unbelief. When God chose the nation of Israel as a special people, it wasn't to choose them for salvation. It was to use them to bring salvation to the world, first through the word of God, then through the lineage that led to Jesus Christ who was Jewish. They were the vehicle to bring the gospel, but they didn't receive some special set of rules where they didn't have to be saved by other means. They had to be saved the same way as everybody else, by the grace of God. They deserved the wrath of God because of their own sin and their own belief, just like we did. This is true today, by the way, for every religious person out there who says all of the great things that they've done as evidence that they're saved. If the evidence of your salvation is anything other than a confession of faith in Jesus Christ, you've got a works problem. You think you're somehow earning your salvation. And it doesn't work that way. That's not the gospel that was preached and proclaimed to us. And so he goes through the kind of this long list of questions, which we don't have time to cover all of them. He ultimately says this in verse nine, what then are we better? Not at all. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So now he's going to go through this long list of scriptures. He's going to be quoting from Psalm 14, Psalm 5, uh, Psalm 14 again. He'll then go into uh, Psalm 10. 
Isaiah 59, Psalm 36. He goes through all of these Old Testament scriptures, all of them summarized there in verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. That's what all of those are saying. And then he says to the Jew, you've had that answer in your hand the whole time. It's been in the law the whole time. He says in verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because the works of the law, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see, they thought by doing the Old Testament law, the works of the law, that they were earning their salvation, climbing their way to the stairway to heaven. They thought they were somehow becoming good enough to be saved. And Paul says, you missed the point of the law. The law is only there to set the boundaries. The law is only there so that when you cross them, you've known you've gone too far. This is why, by the way, it doesn't matter which law you break. And let's take it out of the Old Testament law. Let's just put it in the law of the land here in America today. If you do anything, you break the law. Well, I didn't murder anybody. I'm not a murderer. No, but you sped and that was in the law. You broke the law. The whole point of the law, he says here, was so that we would have knowledge of sin, so that we would know we were sinners. So they were reading the book backwards, which is actually funny if you understand that Hebrew is from the other side of the book going this way. It's true. They were reading the book backwards. They were reading the book as if it was steps to heaven, when instead they were supposed to be reading it as saying, you have sinned. There has to be a sacrifice for your sin. There has to be. I fear sometimes as Christians, we live in this same world, that we have this same struggle within ourselves, where we start to list off all the good and godly things that we do as Christians as evidence of our salvation. The good works are not intended necessarily to be evidence of our salvation. They're intended to be the response of a saved person to their salvation. It's our worship of God to do those good works. We don't do those good works for our benefit. We do good works for his benefit because he was so kind and gracious and merciful to save us from his wrath that we deserve because of our own sinfulness. That's the argument that Paul is making. This is the beautiful thing. We often quote uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that apart from works. But don't forget verse 10. You've been saved by grace through faith, apart from works so that no man may boast. Now God has prepared good works for you in advance. Walk in them. The works follow the faith. The faith is the, the root. The works become the fruit. Do you see the idea there? Later, somebody's going to ask the question in chapter 6, should we sin then all the more that grace may abound? And Paul says, what's wrong with you? Why would you throw the grace of God right back in his faith by sinning more, face by sinning more? No, we do good works because we love the God who saved us from the wrath that we earned. We love God and we'll do anything we can for him. So that's where we start to get to the really exciting stuff here. In verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets 
even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all of his sin and fall short of the glory of God, but they're being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This is the picture. This is his summary. All, he says in verse 23, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If any of those who have sinned and who sinned, all of us, if any of us want to be forgiven of those sins, cleansed of all unrighteousness, that comes through the gift of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He uses three powerful words there in verse 24. Justified, which means to be declared righteous. We are declared righteous as a gift from God, which means if it's a gift, you didn't work for it. There's not enough good works. It was a gift of God. This is why we love him so much because he gave us this amazing gift. He declares us as righteous. The next word that he uses there that it's powerful, it's the word grace. It's a gift given by his grace, which means he doesn't even look at you and say, this one deserves it and that one doesn't. That's not grace. That's not grace. It's out of his goodness that it's given. And then beyond that, this last word, redemption, which means there was an exchange that happened. When you redeem a coupon, you take the coupon, you give it to somebody, and they give you a discount. It's redemption. In this case, the redemption is this. Christ died for our sins. Why did he die, it says. First Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins. In other words, there's an exchange that happens. He died in our place, said another way, the wrath that we deserved God poured out on his son, Jesus Christ, instead of on us so that anybody who would believe could be saved. Anybody. Anybody that was on that earlier list, the murderer, the greedy person, the homosexual person, the idolater, the gossip, the slanderer, the insolent. We don't even know what that means, but that person can get saved too. Any of those people can be saved if they believe in Jesus Christ. And in that moment of belief, in that moment of faith, your sins are removed. It says this in scripture. I'm just going to give you a long list here. It says that the, the, the God of the universe took our sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west. Buried them in the sea of forgetfulness, threw them behind his back and trampled them under his feet. It says that the all-knowing God remembers our sins no more. That he took the certificate of debt, listing out all the stuff against it, and he marked it paid in full. When he looks at the deeds of our life, instead of looking at our righteousness, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, applied to us. So when he sees you, believer, he sees his righteous son. That's the gospel that Paul's not ashamed of. Because that gospel is powerful. He summarizes it in verse 28. We maintain that a man is justified by faith, declared righteous by faith, apart from the works of the law. And that's not just the God of the Jews. He's not the God of the Jews. He's the God of the whole world for everyone. Salvation is for all who believe. That's the gospel that the apostle Paul was not ashamed of by faith, through faith, apart from works. Amen.
You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.